Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cashback. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. All right, here we go. Ah! Cut, cut, cut. And action. Hello and welcome to What Went Wrong, the podcast that explores what went wrong in famous movie productions from massive blockbusters to major movie flops. I am Lizzie Bassett, as of course you all know. And I am Chris Winterbauer, as fewer of you know. (laughs) Welcome, Chris. What movie are we talking about today? Today we are talking about the wonderfully twisted uh, childhood ruining movie, The Exorcist. Uh, which I saw when I was way too young. Uh, I did too. And my experience watching this as a little kid was that I thought it was really dumb and not scary at all. And then I watched it again as an adult and I just like tears were shooting out of my eyeballs. I was so scared. (laughs) I think it's more upsetting to (laughs) grownups than it is to children. For sure. For sure. Um, Obviously, this is one of the best horror movies ever made. I don't think anybody can argue against that. Uh, I do want to get one thing Uh, Out of the way at the top here, yes, there was a convicted murderer in this movie. It is the radiographer with the sort of chin strap beard and bad Caesar haircut a la George Clooney in ER um, when Reagan goes to get the arteriogram at the hospital. He's also potentially a serial killer who may or may not have been active during the time of the movie. Uh, no, we're not really going to talk about him because the behind the scenes in this movie is actually so batshit crazy that an active serial killer is not the worst of their problems. <laughs> Who killed gay men. Yeah. And yeah. that is the basis of the movie Cruising. He, well, it's based William on a book, did. but he did base parts yeah. of Cruising on uh, Paul Bateson, who is the name of that serial yeah. killer. But if you want to learn more about that, I feel certain there are some true crime podcasts that will cover it. Uh, point being, I also think they talk to him in Mindhunter. They do, two. they do. We just yeah. saw that. Small world, <laughs> <laughs> indeed. <laughs> um, so now we have that out of the way. Let's dig into what went wrong in the production of The Exorcist, because technically, uh, that radiologist murdering people was not a problem for them in this production. No, he was a real pro on set. <laughs> <laughs> he nailed it. <laughs> Okay, (laughs) so The Exorcist was released on December 26th, 1973. What a lovely release date. Oh, my God. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Warner Brothers really leaned in on this one. Um, It was directed by William Friedkin, uh, written by William Peter Blatty. Um, About Friedkin, cinematographer Owen Roisman said, it was a very difficult film. 
Uh, Billy was reaching for the limit. He was committed to it and he was obsessed by it himself. And that obsession was contagious. So that's kind of a little hint at where we're going here. Just a brief setup on this. It stars Jason Miller as Father Karras, Ellen Burstyn as Chris McNeil, Max von Sydow as Father Marin, and of course, Linda Blair as Reagan McNeil. And Chris, do you want to set up the plot a little bit? Uh, yeah, so the movie follows Reagan McNeil, a 12-year-old girl, as she is possessed by a demon uh, and her mother's attempts to cure her daughter, eventually enlisting the help of the local Father Karras. Uh, Italian-American or Greek-American priest. Greek, yeah. Yeah, and then uh, eventually Max von Sydow's uh, more experienced character, uh, Father Marin, who may or may not have a history with this demon traced back to his time in Africa and Iraq. Very uh, good. So did you did you watch it recently in preparation? I watched it last night. Oh, okay. What are your, yeah. What's your sort of feeling having just watched it? Uh, it's... An exceptionally well-made movie. It's a very strange movie. It's a very slow horror movie. Like, I watched it with my wife, and uh, the whole, like, Iraq prologue that arguably, like, has no bearing on the plot yeah, in not a lot at all. of ways. <laughs> it takes, like, 15 minutes of the movie. It's great. It sets the tone. It's, like, a really cool sequence. Uh, I'm sure it was very expensive. That would be 30 seconds in, like, a modern mm-hmm. horror movie. You know what I mean? And then the nothing really happens for the first 40 minutes or so mm-hmm. until like Reagan comes downstairs and pees herself. And I, well, my favorite part of the movie actually were the cutaways to father, like just developing father Karras's character yeah. across the whole first half loses his mother questioning his faith. He's a psychiatrist. Anyway, it was a, it was a much more layered and slower movie than I remembered it being. Yeah, it's also interesting because uh, as many of you probably know, when audiences went to go see the exorcist, there were, you know, all these stories about people fainting and vomiting in the theater and, you know, they're lining up around the block to see this. It was an incredible, massive, massive box office success. Actually, the most successful horror movie of all time until it was surpassed by it in 2017. But it's interesting, the parts that people were throwing up and vomiting at actually were not the possession parts. It was the medical procedures, um, which honestly, like I couldn't even look at that when we were when we were watching it. It was it's it is really upsetting. Yeah, the cerebral arteriogram is apparently, like, what doctors have said, like, that's the most realistic medical procedure put on film, like, at the time. Yeah. Is what we'll say. And at the hands of a serial killer. What more could you ask for? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Steady hand. Okay, so uh, what went wrong? Um, the movie is obviously incredible, but the way in which it was made, I would argue, is not. Um, today, we're going to talk a lot about the treatment of the actors on the set because it was it was bad. It was just bad. <laughs> it's worth noting that the 70s was really a sort of auteur era for directors. You've obviously got Coppola, Kubrick, Mike Nichols, um, and all of these guys are part of what's known as the New Hollywood era. And just a brief setup here. Basically, up until the mid-60s, you were still dealing with the studio system in Hollywood, um, where the studios held really every level of power. um, And the director, while in charge, didn't have anywhere near the kind of autonomy that we think of them having today. And Chris, do you know what happened that sort of started to dissolve the studio system? Was this the Congress passing the uh, anti Vertical integration law that separated agencies from studios. Basically what happened is it was decided that studios were violating the Sherman antitrust law because they were just employing entirely vertical integration. They owned every part of the process from 
the, the theaters themselves, uh, all the way up to the contracts on the directors, the crew, the actors, everything. So as that starts to crumble, the new Hollywood era ushers in all of these directors who are given pretty much completely free reign on their sets. And you have this pretty dramatic shift in power from the studio to one person, and that's the director. Um, we're actually going to be talking quite a bit about the new Hollywood era over the next two episodes um, with two films that encompass it even more than this one. And we will give you a little teaser at what those are a little later in the episode. So The Exorcist is based on a 1971 novel by William Peter Blatty of the same name. And he also wrote the screenplay for this. It is loosely based on a true story. Um, not particularly important for our episode. Interesting to look into if you want to. Stanley Kubrick, Arthur Penn, and Mike Nichols were all on the studio's list of directors for this, but they passed. Uh, eventually, Mark Rydell, who I had not heard of him, but he did uh, direct on Golden Pond. He also had just come off of The Cowboys and some other things. He's hired to direct this. However, William Peter Blatty happens to go see a screening of a movie called The French Connection, and he decides the studio mm. has the wrong man. Of course, The French Connection is directed by William Friedkin. And have, you've seen that movie, right, Chris? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great movie. How would you describe it? Thrilling. Real. Raw. So real and raw is exactly what captures Blatty about this movie. That's what he sees and he says, that is what I want for The Exorcist. I want it to feel as real as possible. He frequently keeps talking about how he wants it to have a sort of documentary realism. Hmm. So he convinces the studio to actually buy out Rydell's contract. They bring Friedkin on right away. Wow. Blatty comes to him with a script. Friedkin gives the script one look and just throws it out. <laughs> he, he actually decided it was not close enough to the book. And he literally sits Blatty down, goes through the book section by section, like dog-earing the pages that he wants in the movie and dictates to Blatty, the author of the book and the screenwriter, exactly what he wants the movie to look like. So you're kind of already seeing the kind of control that he has over this project. And I also want to say, like, he's not wrong. The movie is incredible. Mm -hmm. He picked the right moments. <laughs> yes, he did. So casting begins. And again, the studio wants big names. Now, in the past, they would have gotten exactly what they wanted. But Friedkin pushes back and says, no, that's not the right move. Um, actors the studio wanted, they wanted Marlon Brando in the oh, Max, <laughs> Max von Sydow <laughs> role. Um, they Everyone wanted Jack Nicholson. Brando. I know. Oh, God. <laughs> they actually wanted Jack Nicholson as Karis, which would have been interesting. They, however, end up with Jason Miller, who is a playwright who had actually just yeah. won the Pulitzer for his play that championship season. He'd never been in a film before. He had, however, studied for three years to be a Jesuit priest before dropping out after a crisis of faith, pretty much oh, exactly like Father Karras. A um, couple more things. Blatty actually wanted Shirley MacLaine, who he had written the part for in the book, but her mm. team backed out when they found out that he was insisting on writing the screenplay and producing the movie. Uh, Jane Fonda was also offered the role, but she called it capitalist bullshit and turned it down. <laughs> like Jane Fonda was just calling everything capitalist bullshit in the 70s. Like That's it, cool, though. it actually yeah. makes no and sense. And now she makes a Netflix show. So like, let's just be honest. <laughs> That's okay, cool. Jane. Uh, uh, anyway, we end up with Ellen Burstyn in the role of Chris yeah. McNeil, who is the mother. Um, she's amazing in it. She really heavily pursued this. She was friends with Friedkin, and she called him and was like, this is my part. So he winds up with an incredible cast, but not definitely not the cast the studio was looking for. By the way, also, Max von Sydow, 
He's 43 years old when they filmed this, which means he's at least 30 years too young to play the part of uh, Wait, Lancaster Marin. Yeah. Wait, he was 43 when they shot this? 43. Yeah, that's old age makeup on him. He looks 100 years <laughs> old in this movie. He's 43. He, no. Yes. What? Not going to lie. He's a very even, handsome 43. <laughs> no, sure. But even with old age makeup, he looks so old no it's like honestly i was watching makeup tests the makeup artist is dick smith who's like absolutely incredible and watching him put the makeup on max von Sydow, it it really is the makeup like i think it's because they don't actually do that much they just do a lot to the texture of his skin oh yeah i just pulled up a photo of like with and without makeup that is so shocking yeah i would have guessed he was 73 in no, this movie. He's 43. I actually would have guessed 100, as, as I said, <laughs> 100 years old. Wow, that's crazy. Well, so it's interesting, interesting because like Friedkin has has cast somebody who's literally at least 30 years too young mm-hmm. in in the role of the exorcist, but that's mm-hmm. who he wanted and you know what? It's great. Yeah. So last but not least, we get to casting Reagan. And I want to read a quote from Friedkin about what he says happened when Linda Blair walked in the door of the New York office uh, where he was working on this. I was in despair. My office in New York where we filmed the interiors and where we edited the film, it was at 666 Fifth Avenue. My secretary buzzed me and said, there's a woman out here named Eleanor Blair, and she doesn't have an appointment, but she's brought her daughter with her who's 12 years old. She walked in the door and I knew instantly that she was the one. She was very cute, smart, adorable, not beautiful, but really very giving and open and just a lovely young girl. I said, Linda, do you know what The Exorcist is about? She said, yeah, I read the book. It's about a little girl who gets possessed by the devil and does a whole bunch of bad things. And I said, like, what sort of things? She said, well, she hits her mother across the face and she pushes a man out of her bedroom window and she masturbates with a crucifix. Oh, and I looked at her mother, who was smiling. I said, do you know what that means to masturbate? She said, it's like jerking off, isn't it? I said, have you ever done that? She said, sure, haven't you? And so I hired her because I knew she could handle this material with a sense of humor. How old was this child? Twelve. Oh, my God. Well, hold on, because <laughs> as I was doing research, this is the first indication to me that Friedkin's perception of his actors is maybe not entirely in line with reality. I want to listen to a little clip of Linda herself talking about the masturbation scene as an adult. I didn't understand what masturbation was at that age. Um, so I didn't understand, you know, I had, there was a box and a sponge and k syrup with red food coloring. And uh, that was between my legs. So I just had to put the cross into the box. That's all I was doing. I had no idea what it was until many years later. So very different than Uh Friedkin's recollection. Very different. Jesus. Yeah. Dark. It is. I I think it's very indicative of sort of how he wanted to see the actor's involvement Mm -hmm. in this and, and how he wanted to feel about, I guess, the way that they felt about the project. Mm-hmm. So production begins in 1972. Now, the first thing that goes wrong is that a bird flies into a circuit box on the set, ends up setting a fire that burns down almost the entire house set with one exception. Chris, can you guess which part of the set didn't burn? Her bedroom. Yep. Completely untouched. That's creepy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it sets them back almost six weeks. Uh, so we're going to go back to Owen Roisman again, who's the cinematographer. 
He says Billy and I had a relationship, so I wasn't afraid of him, but a lot of people were. He did fire plenty of them, and a lot of other people quit. The makeup artist Dick Smith quit three times. Each time, Billy had to talk him into staying. He can be the most charming guy in the world when he wants to, but he's also the biggest schizophrenic I know. Completely warm one minute and just venomous the next. That's fun. Uh-huh. Uh, Sounds a little bit like the demon that's possessing Reagan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Also, I was just thinking about how, like, with um, with Linda Blair, it's entirely possible that she even said, you know, when he says, you know, do you know what masturbation is? And she says, oh, yeah, like, you mean jerking off. It's entirely possible that she, she said that without know. having any idea what that was. Just that 100%. somebody said that. And then he's just like, oh, great. This precocious 12-year-old. Yeah. I agree with great. that. Yeah, yeah, I think she's. I think she's telling the truth that she had no idea. Like, yeah, exactly. Um, especially when you're watching footage of her behind the scenes in this, like, I, I think it's very clear that she doesn't fully understand what's going on. She is amazing in this movie, by the way. Yeah. Lizzie, let me ask you something. You've got a moderately successful podcast that requires you to watch a boatload of movies, right? Yep. Okay, so how do you find time to cook healthy, affordable meals? I don't. I've been eating delicious, ready-to-eat meals from Factor. They're chef-crafted, dietitian approved and delivered right to my door. Okay, but do they have snacks and smoothies, the only two things that my daughter currently eats? Uh, they sure do. There are over 35 different options every week to choose from, including keto, calorie-smart, veggie, and vegan for you and your vegan child. And the best part is, when you sign up, you save money because Factor is less expensive than takeout. The napkin math checks out. I actually did it. Factor gets you a two-minute, restaurant-quality meal on the table with no prep and no mess. Until my daughter throws it on my face. It's flexible for any schedule. Choose between 6 to 18 meals per week, and you can pause or reschedule anytime. So head to factormeals.com slash www50 and use code www50 to get 50% off. www50 at factormeals.com slash www50 to get 50% off. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So let's get into Friedkin's directing style for a minute because it is interesting. The first thing we're going to talk about is his affinity for slapping actors. (laughs) (laughs) The classic slap method. I I know it well. (laughs) So uh, let's take a listen to what he says about the time that he uh, slapped a priest. Great. Here we go. Do you physically attack people you work with? There, there have been occasions. Yeah, you, you slapped people before, haven't you? I, yeah, well, a priest in The yeah. Exorcist. He was not an actor. He was a priest. And it was 4 o'clock in the morning, and we were freezing. And he had to give the last rites to his friend who had just plunged from oh, the top of a flight of steps. And the crew was there and freezing, and we did about 25, 30 takes, and he wasn't getting it. And he couldn't reach the emotional point. And I had read that other great directors had done that. John Ford, George Stevens had done that. Whack. Yeah. And uh, I first asked, I took him by the shoulders and I asked him if, if, he, if he loved me and if he trusted me. And he said, you God. know I do, Bill. I said, okay, and I told the cameras to get ready and I hit him as hard as I could across the face. And I said, roll it. And he went right into the scene, the shock of it, the shock 
brought forth the tears, and afterwards he embraced me and thanked me. You can't pull that card uh. too often, though, can you? No, I, 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 I've, I haven't done it more than 570 times. Uh, I will say, <laughs> of all the people he could have slapped on this movie, yeah. I'm most okay with <laughs> that guy. <laughs> You're about to be a lot more okay about that guy because uh, it was reported, he was recently accused of having molested a student at the school oh, he taught at in the 80s. So God. I will say that slap may have been deserved, but not for the reasons Friedkin thought it was. <laughs> Fair. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, boy. Um, also, that priest talking about it later, remember that moment where William Friedkin says, I asked him, do you trust me? Mm-hmm. The priest's response when talking about it was, you always trust someone until they ask you if you trust them. Yeah, exactly. Which it's like, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So this is all coming from a place of him wanting to everything to look as real as possible. It's coming mm-hmm. back to that sort of documentary style filmmaking that is exactly what appealed to Blatty in this process. So some other things that Friedkin did to, to try and achieve that reality. Um, he was obsessed with making the makeup look real. The prosthetics that were used on Linda Blair actually burned her skin and sometimes took up to five hours to apply. Also, that infamous scene where she does the sort of backwards crab walk down the stairs, um, it's actually not in the initial theatrical release, which I did not know. It's not, because I just that's the version I watched last night, and it's not in it. it's not in it, yeah. Yeah. That's the same thing we did. Um, So the reason for that is that he didn't like that the stunt woman and contortionist had to use wires to go down the stairs. Yeah. And they were somewhat visible. So they took it out. Later on, when they were able to digitally remove the wires, he allowed it to go back into the edit, I think around the year like 2000 almost. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's actually pretty late um, that that shows up. Yeah. So all of the effects had to be practical. The room itself was sitting on eight pneumatic wheels. Anytime the uh, film set appears to be shaking, it's because grips are literally physically shaking Mm -hmm. the room. Also, you may have noticed that, especially towards the end of the film, you can see their breath because it's so yeah. cold in her room. Obviously, if this were now, they would just do that digitally, but it was 1972, yeah. so they actually refrigerated the set. Um, and I want to play a little clip that describes exactly how cold it was. Just shooting the exorcism in general was difficult. It was very time-consuming because on a technical level, we had to run the air conditioners while we were setting up and preparing. The only reason we wanted the room to be cold was because we had to see the breath. And the catch-22 there is we had to refrigerate the room with air conditioners in order to see the breath. Well, you see the breath usually with moist cold, and air conditioners take the moisture out of the cold also. Because it was dehumidifying at the same time, we had to get it to like 20 below zero before you'd even see the breath. Oh my God. 20 below zero. I heard an urban legend once that it snowed inside it's true. the set. No, it's true. Oh, they really? S- it's true. They said they came in one morning and there was a thin layer of snow on the set. Yeah, I heard that it like it created its own atmosphere yeah. inside because it was so cold. Oh my God. It was so God. cold and they had kept it so cold for so long. Oof. And by the way, there's all these pictures of them on set and like all the men are in these freaking ski suits, you know, Mm -hmm. like head to toe covered. Linda Blair is in a damn nightgown and she's 12 years old. God, this movie sounds so miserable to me. Horrible, horrible. Uh, So 
the biggest thing for him was he he didn't just want his actors to look frightened or startle. He wanted them to actually be frightened and startled, right. um, which, by the way, is not acting. Um, you know, whatever. And one of his fra- favorite ways to achieve this was to actually fire off guns right next to their heads without any warning. What? <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, so like he, a prop gun or something? No, no, no. Like a real gun. Um, and they did not always have blanks in them. So oh my God. he actually, so he really pissed off Jason Miller, who played uh. Father Karras. Um, there's a scene when uh, Damien Karras is listening to the tape that he's just recorded of mm-hmm. Reagan speaking. And if you remember in that scene, he's kind of crouched in front of the tape recorder. He's listening. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden the phone rings yeah. and his head snaps like a gun has gone off. Now, that is because William Friedkin fired off a shotgun right next to his head. Oh, my God. That's <laughs> awful. However, I will say, having directed a scene where somebody has to react to a phone, uh, we had to use like a, one of those portable air horns because people anticipate the phone and you can tell. Uh, but I would never use a shotgun. <laughs> Let me tell you what you don't anticipate. A shotgun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, lo- I-, I bet you the prop guy brought him an air horn and he was like, I'll take the shotgun. Here's how bad the uh, gun situation actually got on set. Uh, <laughs> like there's a gun situation. It's like yeah. we have to take his guns at the top of the day. Oh, my God. So Max von Sydow would actually walk on set every morning and he would ask the cinematographer where the guns were that day. <laughs> and Owen would tell him. Uh, it's and- like Michael Scott doing improv in the office. <laughs> oh, like, no. Give me your guns, Michael. <laughs> it's William Friedkin on the set of a movie. <laughs> Literally. Oh, what a uh, psycho. Yeah. So Von Sydow oh. said that Friedkin behaved like a man with total freedom and total power, which is exactly what he was doing. Oh, uh, however, probably the most irresponsible instances on set have to do with the stunts and the safety of the actors, um, yeah. particularly Linda Blair and Ellen Burstyn. So... The first scene that we're going to talk about, and this is this is pretty infamous, but it's the scene where she is on the bed. She's not fully kind of transformed yet. Um, She's in that sort of white nightgown, like on top of the sheets and she's being tossed up and down Mm -hmm. um, on the bed and she's flailing. And then the part that we're about to hear her talk about is when she starts to be pitched forward into a seated position and back position oh, yeah. over and Which, over and over at again. At first, I thought that was a, um, a dummy or a no. model when I first, when I was, because I was like, it's moving too fast. That can't be a person. It's her. And, it's, and then you, if you pause it, you can absolutely tell that that is a 12-year-old girl who is just being whipped at like roller coaster speeds on this bed. Yeah. So let's hear Linda talk about that moment because she'll actually explain what happened. I said to Billy, if I was a devil, I'd get up and, and grab her, and I would thrash her. I would let her know. He said, go ahead and do it. It's a rigging that Marcel Vocateer came up with that was a mold of my back, and it was a, like a hard metal. And then they had like a, a brace around my stomach, and then it was laced up on the sides. I had her completely strapped in. And I could, I had her. It was actually manually pumped by some big men on the other side of the wall. I could throw her up and back, and I had her. And the lacing came loose while I was being thrown. And so as I went forward, the piece was coming back. So it was a constant. And I, the dialogue was, please make it stop, make it stop, it hurts, it burns, whatever. 
she started screaming. I didn't know what to do. And so I'm just yelling. It hurts really, really. And th somebody thought I yelled Billy. And I actually never broke character. She wanted out. She wanted really out. She was really getting thrashed. That's the footage I use in the movie where I'm crying my eyes out because they are brutally damaging my back. I mean, it's hard to listen to when you actually have the context of like... Even when you're watching it, you can tell... Yeah. You know what I mean? There's something not right about it in the movie itself. Yeah. It doesn't feel like movie magic. You know what I mean? It's just it's like, not. oh, let's just abuse someone on camera and that'll yeah. give us the effect that we need. She's 12. Uh, and even if she weren't 12, even well, if she was... We're going to get to a grown 50. woman who they did the same thing to. Yeah, exactly. Um, um, but it terrible. did permanent damage to her, to her spine. Um, and she wasn't the only one to sustain a spinal injury. Let's hear from Ellen Burstyn, who sustained something in the scene where it looks like Ellen Burstyn gets like sort of thrown off of the mm -hmm. bed by Linda Blair. I had a rig around my midriff with a wire coming out the back, and the stuntman was pulling me. So we took her back the first time, and she, it was a good shot. And Billy said, um, we're going to do it again. I said, Billy, he's pulling me too hard. I can get hurt. And Billy said, well, it has to look real. I said, I understand, but I'm telling you, I could get hurt. And the stuntman was standing there listening to this, and Billy said to him, okay, don't pull her so hard. But as I turned away, I felt them exchange a look. And he said, give it to her this time. <laughs> and I said, really? And he says, give it to her. And this is Ellen Burstyn, right? She's a nice lady. And so I said, okay. So when I hauled off, she came completely off her feet. You see me hit and you see me reach for my back. I screamed in horrendous pain. Billy motioned to Owen to tilt the camera down on me. And I saw it and I was so furious and said, turn the effing camera off because I couldn't stand that he was willing to just get a quick shot of it before they called the ambulance, you know. Couple things. Uh -huh. uh, this stunt guy has got a weird vibe. Really weird. Yeah, it's like, wow, well, it's just, this is how we do it in the movie business. It's like you're talking about hurting people and admitting yeah. that you're hurting people. It's very strange. Well, Definitely. it's almost it's almost like every time he's just leaning on the fact that he had the express permission of William right. Friedkin. And it's as if he's in the army and it's like, well, it was the orders. Exactly. But it's like th that just shows you how much perceived power the director had, but also how other people, I think, used that as an excuse as well on set. Yeah. And I mean, ultimately... The stunt coordinator's job, at least Is to now, not hurt people. It's to protect the actors. Yes. And, and from a more cynical perspective, it's to ensure that there's not like a workers' comp claim on the production. But really more than that, it's like you need to... We, I, he is at, there as a barrier between the director and dangerous things. Um, not this and guy. It, it also does remind me, too, of the moment in The Abyss when mm -hmm. uh, Ed Harris gets up and is just like, you're not even rolling right now. You know what I mean? It's kind of the inverse of that moment with um, 
Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio um, doing her topless scene and mm-hmm. James Cameron. It's an ex- there's like an exploitative quality to it. Yeah. Um, in this case, and you can tell when they slow mo it in this clip, and you watch her hit the ground. You're like, yeah. oh yeah, she's just clear. It looks like she like landed on her tailbone or something, and just like yeah, really it it pulls it. her straight back from the middle of her back. So a couple more examples of this in the movie. Shocking that there are more, but there are. Um, for Father Karras's fall at the end of the film, the one where he dives out that window and down those mm-hmm. steps. Yeah. The shot that William Friedkin wanted, basically the way it was explained to the stuntman, they decided the only way to make it look real was for him to really fall down all 92 steps of yeah. that Georgetown staircase. Um they padded the steps with rubber, but that guy did it. He did a headfirst dive down yeah. 92 steps. They did more than one take of this, of him of doing it. And apparently uh, there were Georgetown students. This is Jason Miller talking about this. He said that they actually sold tickets on the rooftops to watch him do a headfirst dive down those stairs over and over again. It's crazy. And it's so funny. They made him do the whole thing when it's like, I think in the movie it's cut into like three or four shots. Oh you know my what God. I mean? It's cut and it's also like, it's like choppy and weird the way that yeah, they yeah. do the f- shooting of it. So that could yeah. totally have been a doll. Feels unnecessary in a lot of ways. For sure. Just briefly, there is sort of the the lore of the curse of the exorcist. Um, there were no fewer than nine deaths during and immediately after filming. Um, both the actor who played Burke Dennings, who is the director that she does push out the window, he dies almost as soon as filming ends. What happened? How did he die? Natural causes. I think he died of a heart attack. Um, Jesus. The woman who played Father Karras' mother, uh, who's a Greek woman, also passed away as soon as cameras stopped rolling. And creepy that they've also both died in the movie. Mm Mm-hmm. A night watchman on set died. The newborn baby of a camera assistant died. Max von Sydow's brother died. Linda Blair's grandmother died. Um, Jason Miller's son was actually almost killed by a motorcycle on an empty beach is one description I saw of the accident. Okay. It's very strange. Really weird. (laughs) Um, And then there are two more that I couldn't find exactly who passed away. But uh, Ellen Burstyn insists that there were nine deaths affiliated with the project. So William Friedkin said, quote, I don't have any enemies. Presumably there are people who don't like me, but I wouldn't call them enemies, and I didn't then. The studio executives were just objects that I had to get by to do what I wanted. The same was true for all of us back then, Coppola, Bogdanovich, and Spielberg. Talk about getting fired. We were getting fired every day. I got fired about five times from The Exorcist. My producer would get the phone call and then simply hang up. So that's that's his experience of this. Oh. <laughs> However, contrast that with Linda Blair, whose entire life essentially becomes colored by The Exorcist. At 13 years old, this movie comes out. She's receiving death threats. Um, On the other side of that, she's being expected by reporters to talk about Catholicism and God and the devil. Uh, Mm -hmm. Warner Brothers ends up having to hire bodyguards for her for more than six months after the movie um, due to the death threats. Despite her obvious talent as an actress, this completely encompassed her her career. She didn't really have another defining role. Um, she keeps working. She's still working. But it's certainly not what it could have been. Uh, mm. Friedkin gets to move right on to an incredible career, including films such as Sorcerer, Cruising, To Live and Die in L.A., Killer Joe, 
and many more. Something I found really interesting when I was researching this is that for all the talk of Friedkin talking about this movie like a documentary, he actually never saw a real exorcism prior to making this movie. It wasn't until 2017 when he does see one for the first time. And that's when he makes the documentary The Devil and Father Amorth following a priest performing his ninth exorcism. On finally seeing a real exorcism, here is what Friedkin said. It was terrifying. I went from being afraid of what could happen to feeling a great deal of empathy with this woman's pain and suffering. Awfully interesting, given the way that he treated a 12-year-old girl on the set of his movie. So that about wraps it up for The Exorcist. (laughs) Uh, I have a sixth clip. Did you want me to play it? Uh, I skipped it. You know what? It's going to creep you out. So yeah, why don't you play this? Uh, This clip that Chris is referencing... um, This is Friedkin talking about how he interacted with Linda Blair on set and how he got her to give the performance that she gives. ...kind of surrogate father to Linda. I would very often kid her into doing something. I would say to her, now you're going to have to take this crucifix and you're going to have to pretend that you are thrusting it between your legs. And she would say, oh, no, like a little girl. She was 12 years old. She'd say, oh, no, I'm not going to do that. And I'd say, oh, yes, you are. Oh, yeah, come on. And I would kid her into it. I'd start tickling her, making her laugh. I think it was her affection for me that allowed her to do things that have probably never been asked of a child, and certainly not in a movie. It was about mutual trust. (laughs) Okay. <laughs> what? I know. I mean, the the killer thing uh, is like... Painfully unself-aware, man. <laughs> I know. The thing is, he like he does get unbelievable performances out of these people. The movie is absolutely incredible. It does feel real. That is part of the horror of it. But... Uh, I think that part of the problem, though, and, and you know, to, to bring this all to a, to a close... In art, it's ex- we've historically deemed it acceptable for an artist to abuse themselves or take their own pain and translate that into something creative for us to consume. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what's challenging with, or where it gets, I think, ethically complicated at best and at worst just pass you know leaves complicated and becomes gross really quickly is in movies when the director is the manager but there are a number of people and artists present etc and it's a work environment and then they are pushing people to do things that maybe they'd be comfortable doing you know we've talked about james cameron for example um but ultimately they're setting boundaries for those around them in an environment where to say no yeah will draw the ire of not only everyone around you but the studio that you're working for and potential opportunities down the line the pressure of any actor to just say yes to whatever the director especially a big director you know like William Friedkin wants is going to be incredibly high so I think that the question we have to ask ourselves is, you know, as people who consume movies and for us, like, work tangentially in this business is, 
what are we going to allow, you know, as acceptable behavior from these people? And are we going to let the fact that they just made something great justify the abuse? Because like you said, it's like, yeah, they got, you know, he got great performances. He made a great movie. Steven Spielberg's made great movies. And my yeah. understanding is he's never slapped anybody and he's yeah. never broken anyone's backs either. And well, it, so it did kinda, Sidney Lumet and, yeah, you know, a number of other people. It, it comes down to something that Jason Miller actually said about, uh, about him firing the gun off next to his head. He... I'm paraphrasing, but he basically said like what pissed him off the most about it is he was like, Billy, I'm an actor. Like it's my job to recreate that response. I don't need the stimulation there to do it for me. It's almost like it's, it's like he's taking their job away from them to a certain degree by sort of like manually creating all of this stimulation. Um, And by the way, just to end on a bit of a light note, what William Friedkin said to Jason Miller when Jason Miller said, you know, basically like, what happens if you accidentally shoot me in the fucking head? Uh, William Friedkin goes, don't worry, we have Jack Nicholson waiting in the wings. <laughs> Great. <laughs> really fun. All right. So, Chris, uh, what went right? Uh, I mean, what went right is they made an incredible, an incredible movie. Um, and what went wrong is that they had to ruin at you know worst someone's life to to do it and at 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 its lightest at least se- severely damaged them with yeah. Linda with Linda Blair um and also what went wrong is it it perpetuates it furthers this idea that the only way to make a movie this good was there's no counterfactual so it's like he had to do this to get this version of the movie made we don't know that that's true yeah we don't there's no it, it, you know, Francis Ford Coppola, we're going to do Apocalypse Now coming up. And Francis Ford Coppola nearly got everyone killed, literally, <laughs> oh, making God. that movie. And it's one of the best war movies ever. But I think we can all look to Saving Private Ryan, where yeah. Steven Spielberg was shooting that thing ahead of schedule and everyone was feeling great, uh, and say, no, you don't have to simulate the hells of Vietnam in order to make a movie. And... You don't need to destroy a girl in the same way that the devil would, literally, to get that performance from her, necessarily. And I think it's more actually, I think what we need to start looking at it as is, it's actually more of an indictment of the director's talent for them to need to resort to schlocky tactics that are damaging to the people on set uh, than it is a compliment to their dedication to the craft or ingenuity. And so yeah. I think we need to flip that on its head. I will actually, I'll call out a what went right uh, and, and give William Friedkin some, some credit. One of the most incredible things that he did on this set was the way that he envisioned a lot of these shots that we kind of take for granted today. A lot of things that you'd be able to get with a Steadicam um, mm-hmm. and, and some other types of sort of crane shots and rigs that are readily accessible now that were not invented then. Um, if you watch some of the behind the scenes, the the way that he and the the cameramen actually worked together to create some of these shots is really incredible and really cool. And it did kind of lead to the sort of technology that we have today. Um, one shot, there's a tracking shot where it follows them up the stairs all mm-hmm. the way to the top. And they actually had to dangle a cameraman on a wire. Basically they put him in a harness and on a wire and they sat him on this little like swing seat almost. 
and they had him and they just literally dragged him up the stairs and they had to light it so there were no shadows whatsoever. And he just followed the assistant all the way up the stairs. Um, And that was their version of a SETI cam. Um, So I I will say like he, he is an amazing, he is an amazing talent. Um, Absolutely. And it is an amazing movie, but at what cost? Yeah, and I think that what the what went right too is they didn't feel the need to over-explain the movie and the mythology and whatnot in no. a way that I think a lot of horror films are forced to maybe right now. Uh, like you, all the mythology needs to make sense, and we need to be able to understand it. And I just liked how ambiguous the movie was at the end of the day. I agree with that. All right, so just to wrap this up, we do have one request from all of you lovely listeners, which is if you have a minute, please leave us a review. It would just It would mean so much, and we'd very much appreciate it. Five Uh, stars, five stars. Five stars, but but also some words. Um, As Chris said, we do have Apocalypse Now coming up next, and then following that, we will have a special guest coming on for Heaven's Gate. I'm very excited about that one. Uh, And when you're leaving these reviews, guys, try to keep it professional and not make it personal. (laughs) No, I disagree. I disagree. (laughs) (laughs) Personally attack Chris as much as possible. Okay, bye! What Went Wrong is a Sad Boom podcast presented by Lizzie Bassett and Chris Winterbauer. Editing and music by David Bowman with cover art from Uthana Uos. 